This is Through the Keyhole, episode 11. I'm your host, Jeremy Key, and I'm joined in this episode by Andrew Snyder, husband, father, and PhD candidate in philosophy. In this episode, Andrew and I discuss the value and importance of a mythological mindset in a materialist world. Appropriately, this episode was recorded on the birthday of J.R.R. Tolkien. As you might expect, Tolkien figures prominently in our conversation. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing to the show. You can also follow me at Jeremy A. Key on Twitter and through the keyhole on YouTube as well. This is my conversation with Andrew Snyder. Enjoy the show. All right, this is the Keyhole Podcast, through the Keyhole Podcast, I should say. It's been a couple of years. Uh, Episode 11, I'm your host, Jeremy Key, and I am here today with uh, a friend of mine, a a, a friend that we met on Twitter, and now we're friends in in real life, I think, Uh, Dr. Andrew Snyder. Doctor, uh, welcome to the show. How are you this evening? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing, I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. So the way I like to do these things is, uh, you being my guest, I want to know a bit about you, uh, as I'm sure my, my listeners do as well. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? Uh, what did you do to get the illustrious title of doctor? Um, yeah. Tell us about yourself. All right. Um, I mean, most importantly, you know, I'm a, I'm a husband and a father to twin one-year-olds after a pretty long journey to get here. Um, but um, just absolutely blessed on that front. Um, now, vocationally, to be honest, I'm kind of all over the place. <laughs> um, so, you know, educationally, I, I've got a background in philosophy and in theology. Um, full disclosure, I won't actually be doctor till May. Fair <laughs> enough. But... Uh, yeah, and so background in philosophy and theology. Uh, I've done a few different things career-wise. Um, for about five years, I taught at a classical Christian school, um, philosophy and religion and logic and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Um, at the moment, I'm uh, adjunct professor of philosophy and religion. Been doing that for about five years or so. Um, you know, pretty consistently for the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then by day, I'm actually a financial risk advisor. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so, like I said, I'm kind of all over the place. Um, I have a lot of interests, which I think kind of j- goes with a humanities personality. Yeah. Um, that is sort of, you know, want to do everything all at once. Sure. Um, and then also, you know, I've been building out my you know podcast and some digital content areas, which is really what I most like doing. Right. Um, yeah, that's really what I'm doing. Uh, as I said, I'm, I'm gearing up to defend my doctoral dissertation on Kierkegaardian psychology Hmm. um so yeah that's kind of where I am um in the last I don't know year or so I've really been um becoming saturated in Tolkien in particular yeah and I think that's how you and I kind of uh appeared on each other's radar Mm -hmm. Um, and what's interesting about you how old are you Andrew I've never asked you that yeah I am 33 so you're 33, I'm 36. We're about the same age, give or take. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. you came to Tolkien uh, a bit later in life than than most Tolkien fans who possess your level of, of <laughs> fandom. Um, mm-hmm. How did you How did you come to Tolkien? Yeah, and so I mean, 
I, I've thought about this before that I feel like I could trace the kind of the the line of events that led up to that pretty far back, but uh, you know, keep it more to the point. Um, so for um, from about 2019 to 2021, um, you know, my wife and I had six consecutive miscarriages. Um, wow. By far the most difficult and one of the most life-defining periods in my entire life. Sure. Um, and so that deep sorrow um, really served to help me better understand myself, uh, my, my faith, um, how to kind of integrate sorrow into a life of meaning. Mm. And then talking just kind of came up um, almost out of nowhere. I mean, I had seen the movies, you know, a while back, but um, I wasn't much of a reader growing up. That's something that came mm. later in life, really starting in grad school. Yeah. That's when I really took on that kind of voracious um, desire to read. Yeah. And so I'd never read Tolkien, saw the movies, liked them well enough, but that was it. Um, and then it was actually the, uh, uh, you know, Caitlin's Tea with Tolkien uh, Twitter yeah. popped up on my feed. I know you've had her on the show, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I have no idea why, but I just decided to follow. <laughs> um, and so I started to get a little Tolkien content there, uh, you know, listen to her podcast. Um, and, um, you know, I know that she had talked about kind of some of her losses, mm-hmm. uh, about the same time I was dealing with that. Yeah. Um, and so I, I just started to kind of get drawn in and I started to listen to other Tolkien podcasts before ever actually reading Tolkien myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started listening to kind of Tolkien road and, and, uh, Prancing Pony mm-hmm. and, um, I don't know, I started to get saturated in the world of Tolkien and something seemed to resonate not just as a you know entertaining story, but as something deeper than that. Hmm. Um, and so finally, um, really about a year or so ago, a year and a half, I just finally um, you know went on Amazon. Uh, I you know ordered the three books and started into it. Yeah, and immediately I was just drawn into how real it was. Hmm. Um, one thing that particularly drew me in is the role that sorrow plays throughout Tolkien's writings. Yeah. Um, you know, after I read the the trilogy, I, I went um, immediately to the Silmarillion and, and one line that, you know, immediately stands out, stood out to me and continues to this day was um, towards the beginning. At, I think it was the, maybe the, the Quintus Silmarillion. Um, there's this line um, speaking of, in reference to Olmo, um, you know, if joyful is the fountain that rises in the sun, its springs are in the wells of um, sorrow unfathomed at the foundations of the earth. Mm-hmm. And it's that kind of mentality that, that really runs throughout his story, that um, connection of sorrow with joy and with meaning and ultimately with the, um, you know, the the happy turn. Yeah. It just resonated deeply with exactly what I needed. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I just really went all in, even though I'm pretty new to, to Tolkien. I just couldn't get enough. Um, and that's, yeah, that's how that happened. There's a lot there. Uh, it sounds like, you know, you have a pretty good Tolkien testimony uh, as far as those go. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, the, the, the realness that you mentioned 
that Tolkien has, how it's not, it's entertaining, sure, but it's not sure. just entertainment. It, and I don't, I don't know that he ever intended it to be from what I've, from what I've read from, you know, and, and I don't know if you're at this stage in your fandom yet, but I have, I have transcended the, the fandom merely for, from being merely a fan of the books to being a fan of books about the books. Um, and, and what I've, what I've seen in the books about the books is, is this idea that Tolkien, when he was writing those stories, he wasn't, he was subcreating. We'll get into all that, I'm sure. But he wasn't writing from the perspective of writing a story so much as he was writing as if he were discovering or translating a history. And, you know, having, I can imagine that having that mindset as you're doing this, it it, it would allow you to to think about things in a more lived in sort of way uh, you know what are what are your thoughts on on tolkien as uh as historian rather than just tolkien as medievalist or, or fantasy writer yeah i mean honestly i think one thing that really primed me for reading tolkien for meaning for you know discovering mm-hmm. truths about reality is um you know, I'd become a a listener of, of Jordan Peterson, um, kind of leading into that. And I think he's the one who first really helped me to understand that stories are more than stories. Yeah. Um, you know, he's done so many breakdowns of, you know, Disney stories or fairy tales and that sort of thing. And so he's what first really helped me, at least on a popular level, kind of get into that mindset. Mm. Um, and so when I read Tolkien, you know, I, I recognized he wasn't just telling stories mm-hmm. right that he was telling something real um you know he's made it very clear it's not like he was setting out to write an allegory um yeah. but at the same time he wasn't writing something arbitrary mm-hmm. right it, it, he was acting as a, a muse rather than a source of amusement and those are two mm-hmm. very different things mm-hmm. um and then of course we know once i read on fairy stories after reading lord of the rings it started to come into vision even more clearly exactly kind of what he saw himself doing um and almost unintentionally just out of an outpouring of who he is um as a you know christian and as a, a thinker mm-hmm. um you know I, I love reading his letters you know where he talks about sort of discovering elements about his own story Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, um, just recently I read his letter where he talks about, uh, you know, how how Faramir just sort of showed up, yeah. and yeah, um, that's, that's he didn't like him at first. Discoveries was was the way that he he wrote about. It. I've I've come across this this new character. I think his name is Fair or something like that. <laughs> right. The the organic way in which he he wrote so candidly about his surprise of discovering mm-hmm. this character <laughs> who was you know purely well i say purely was of his creation we can discuss whether or not it was purely his creation or not but Mm -hmm. um yeah yeah i agree sorry i interrupted you please continue. no no you're no you're you're, absolutely um or or another time uh where he's talking about you know tom bombadil right Mm -hmm. Uh, why do the hobbits come across from the old forest well that's where he lives (laughs) (laughs) yeah just so matter of factly right right yeah or I finally just started in on the uh, Humphrey Carpenter uh, biography. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, right at the beginning, he he 
talks about how um, you know someone brought to Tolkien's attention some inconsistency in Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. and you know he goes at it like he's you know providing uh, an explanation of some obscure bit of history mm-hmm. rather than correcting his story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he um, you know minds like Tolkien they don't seem to they don't seem to occur all that often. Um, you know when you when you sit down and you think about you. You, you just finished reading Lord of the Rings, let's say. You just finished reading mm-hmm. The Legendarium, so Silmarillion, uh, The Hobbit, and then the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. You sit down, you read those, and then you just kind of think for a minute, and you think, all of this came from the mind of a single man. So all of all of this detailed geography, all of this poetry, all these different languages and 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 uh, scripts and, and alphabets and personal histories and lineages and customs and architecture and just all these different things that that people labor their entire lives to to create just one of those aspects in a in a semi-coherent way and tolkien has created or sub-created an entire world and in a coherent world that you know, going into the idea of subcreation a little bit, the reader, it's a secondary world. The reader reads it and they, I, I believe Tolkien's language is they're enchanted by it. They, mm-hmm. it, it becomes real to them. Uh, you know, he said that that's the mark of, of a good, of a good writer, of a good fantasy writer in particular is, um, you know, can, can their writing absorb the reader? And Tolkien's surely does. Um, I want to get more. Obviously, we'll get more into subcreation and Tolkien mm-hmm. and myth. But before we do that, I do want to take a detour and ask you why Kierkegaard? Because you know, in in pop popular philosophy, if such a thing exists, he doesn't seem to get a whole lot of mentions. I you know i I came across him in my mid twenties. And then we read a little bit about him in graduate school because he's, you know, he's held as, as one of the first existential psychologists. Um, And you read his stuff and you can understand why, but you know, you don't hear his name a lot. You don't hear his ideas thrown around. At least I don't, I don't run Mm -hmm. the same circles quite as you. So what, what was it about Soren Kierkegaard that, that drew you in and and what is this this deep you know seems like a passion that you have for his for his thoughts yeah and to kind of back up what you just said about him um, not getting a lot of screen time nowadays you know my my undergrad was in philosophy not once was Kierkegaard mentioned huh <laughs> Again, as a philosophy major, yeah. Uh, which, looking back, I find that to be absolutely criminal. Um, sure. But yeah, it, it wasn't until graduate school that his name started to pop up here and there. Um, and this is when I was uh, studying Christian thought in, in seminary. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, his name started to pop up here and there. Um, but I can point to kind of one specific hook in um, one of my courses. The course itself wasn't terribly. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, rememberable to me. Uh, I don't even know what it was, but um, I, I remember the, the professor's PowerPoint slide had this quote that said from Kierkegaard, with God's help, I shall become myself. 
Hmm. That just stood out to me. It's kind of weird. Um, again, even though, uh, you know, I'd already gone through a philosophy program. Um, to be honest, I don't think it was very good. Um, I, <laughs> Fair enough. I really didn't understand um, the idea of, you know, form and, and fulfillment, mm-hmm. what it really means to be, um, that there is such a thing as different kind of gradients of existence. And mm-hmm. so that stood out to me. Why would I need God's help to be myself? Does aren't you always yourself? <laughs> um, and so that thought just sort of took resonance in my head. Why do I need to become myself? Now, next semester, I took a course in Augustine where I read basically all of his major works. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, starting with the Confessions and especially into City of God, mm-hmm. um, I really started to get a better understanding of what it means not just to think as a christian but to be to exist as a christian yeah uh, i started to to get a better understanding of sort of natural you know teleology or the the you know goals built into reality all of which ultimately um turn back toward the the creator right all things are from god and to god yeah. and so it was kind of in that context i started to get a better understanding of mm. myself I started to understand that there are things in me that are lacking that, um, you know, quite literally, I'm, I'm not what I should be on the deepest levels of who I am. Mm-hmm. And so um, Augustine gave me kind of a, a framework for understanding that quote from Kierkegaard that really stood out to me. How do I become who I am supposed to be? And so it was really with that Augustinian framework that I then um I don't, I don't even know how I did it, but I just, for whatever reason, I, you know, picked up Kierkegaard and started reading. Yeah. Um, and things just started to, to connect. Um, and I started to see Kierkegaard um, really as a prophet to our contemporary age, mm-hmm. because, you know, our age talks all the time about authenticity, right? You know, it'll tell you to be yourself, but in a very different way than what I'm discussing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really the, you know, the existentialist who typifies our age would be more of the, the Jean-Paul Sartre uh, approach who, you know, famously said that our um, existence precedes our essence. Right. Right. And so that's the idea that really is mainstream today. The idea that there is no such thing as human nature. You have no real innate potential or perhaps a better way of saying it. There's no actuality to you. All you are is potential. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and so, um, Kierkegaard really provides a corrector to that. He says, okay, yes, authenticity is good. However, that Sartrean unbounded freedom is not actually freedom because if all you are is potential, if all you are is your continual choice making, well, where is it that you're going? Yeah. Right. If that's all you are, then all you are is, um, you know, your eternal becoming suspended, suspended in an abyss. Right. You have no point of origin and there is no real conclusion to your freedom. And yeah. so you're simply um, what Kierkegaard would say, you're in unbounded despair at that point. Hmm. And so Kierkegaard says, yes, be authentic. But also recognize the constraints to human existence. Yeah. Right. You actually are created in a certain way and for a certain purpose. Mm-hmm. And so all of his psychology kind of takes place within that context, um, which is actually uh, very 
Augustinian in its kind of basic direction. And in fact, I've even read a couple of books making that direct connection hmm. uh, between Augustine and Kierkegaard, that they are very pathologically related. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think Kierkegaard helps us to understand who we are um, instead of um, instead of fleeing from reality, he actually helps us to become more grounded within it. And yeah. so, you know, anxiety, for example, uh, for Kierkegaard, it, it's not something that necessarily um, hinders us. It's, it's not something simply to be, you know, avoided or, or pushed away as a, um, you know, hindrance to our freedom, mm-hmm. but that ultimately, you know, anxiety is something that helps us to better understand our instability and drives us, you know, like Augustine to mm. seek rest for our restless hearts. Yeah. And so I think that um, just again, pathologically Kierkegaard captures that Augustinian, Augustinian spirit and calls us to be our authentic selves in the most freeing way possible. Mm. Once again, there's a lot there. Um, yeah. <laughs> there's a whole lot there. And you know, I was as you were as you were talking, particularly about about the the idea that we should, you know, recognize, acknowledge, and embrace our limits rather than seeing them as as obstacles to to be overcome. I was I was thinking about uh, something, an example that Bishop Robert Barron likes to use. Uh, when when conversations about about you know rights versus responsibilities and and freedom and all that because we we tend to misunderstand I think uh, when we talk about freedom when we talk about rights and and all that I think these days we kind of misunderstand what what those terms actually mean and so the illustration that Bishop Barron likes to use is. You know, imagine that you're sitting down at a piano. You never, you've never done anything at a piano. So you're sitting down at a piano, put your hands on the keyboard. What do you do? Well, if you don't know anything about music or music theory or instrumentation or anything, you're just banging around on the keys and you're making noise. It's only by learning what the keys are on the keyboard, learning what notes comprise chords, what what notes comprise scales learning music theory so that you can know that you know g minor doesn't sound really really good with i don't know uh i don't know i can't think of anything right now but knowing what works and what doesn't Mm -hmm. and you know he says so so you become a great musician not by freeing yourself from all these rules and restrictions but actually by recognizing them and understanding them in such an intimate way that you can make them work for you. Um, You know, on the sticking on the theme of music, I'm reminded of the Ein Lindele. You know, Melkor is whenever I read that chapter, whenever I read the Ein Lindele, I always see Melkor as just this, this petulant child who's just, knocking things over and, and laughing while he's doing it. But in, in that story, Eru takes the noise that Melkor is making by just being a petulant child. And he incorporates it into 
the melody into the music of the Ainur. And, you know, obviously Eru in this situation is God, so he kind of knows mm-hmm. everything. But it it goes to this idea that 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 you you take some you try to go beyond what's established and it's going to be noise, but you stay within the confines of what's established and it can be beautiful, it can be creative, it can mm-hmm. be um you know creative not just in the sense of wow i hadn't thought about it like that but creative in a, a more basic sense of here is something where previously there was nothing and um yeah i i i, I i've never actually heard that quote from kierkegaard but uh but yeah it, it strikes me as very almost augustinian in the sense mm-hmm. of uh you know our hearts are restless or no, it's not our hearts are restless. I think he phrases it uh in like in the singular, our heart is restless until it rests in you, you know, mm-hmm. implying that we have a a singular heart as well as our individual ones. Um you know, which which you know, those two are tied together obviously by just this mm-hmm. idea that 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 we are all we're we need this source. We need we need God to to understand who we are. We need God to to find that rest that we can't find in ourselves. Um, yeah, yeah. I like Kierkegaard. I like Kierkegaard based just on what you said. Because, like I say, I <laughs> I tried to read Fear and Trembling because I I really like uh, I really like the story of of Abraham and Isaac. I always mm-hmm. have. And so I, I heard, oh, there's this guy, Kierkegaard, he wrote this book, Fear and Trembling. It's about this and that. And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. And uh, I didn't get very far. Uh, he's, definitely a, he's definitely someone who's difficult to just kind of jump into. He, yeah, he's not, a, he's not a casual read. Um, no, not at all. By any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, the real reason I had you on the show is because you and I share a love of myth and storytelling uh, we we share you know very 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 similar uh, worldviews in terms of of the way that we see God moving and interacting and you know kind of driving things, and so you have a podcast, the Mythic Mind, and you you have been pouring into that for a while now. What is it about myth that? that draws you in what is it about storytelling you know we've already talked a bit about tolkien what what drew you into him but more generally what is it about the mythic mind that is so appealing to you i mean ultimately myth is the realm of of meaning Mm -hmm. um something that i say pretty often and i'm certain that i did not originate this is that you know, the scientific or really the, the modern worldview focuses on the world of matter, mm-hmm. whereas myth focuses on the world that matters. Huh. Um, so it's kind of a, like a clever way of yeah demonstrating the distinction there. Mm-hmm. And so myth is, myth is the realm of, of, of meaning, um, which obviously overlaps over our own lives, which, you know, we have stories we have goals we have um you know major plots and subplots and um you know um we kind of discover our own characters along the way um and so i think really this gets at what tolkien is doing 
Um, actually, before I even go that route, um, there's another quote from Kierkegaard that has stood out to me for a while. This is from The Concept of Anxiety, when he says that the myth allows something internal to take place outwardly. Hmm. And I think... Okay, okay. I think that there's something to that. And in fact, um, you know, Carl Jung says uh, very similar things regarding, you know, the um, kind of the the unconscious, mm-hmm. right? That is sort of... Um, I'm trying to think of where I want to go with this because I, I feel like I'm about to go in a lot of different places all at once. I'll, I'll follow your lead, man. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm here. You're here on my show. Go where you want. <laughs> I mean, so, you know, basically he treats um, a lot of, you know, the old myths, the old sort of mythologies, uh, essentially as, you know, the subconscious dreams that we have um, kind of our unconscious, you know, workings through our you know experience in the world right these things kind of came out as um sort of waking dreams of you know the myths and and the stories and so ultimately you know when you're studying um you know the great myths of old when you're you know studying um i mean whatever maybe um the uh you know orpheus or you know whoever that ultimately you know these aren't these aren't just superstitions of ancient people mm-hmm. that these are outworkings of human existence in, you know, mythic form. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, so too um, in, you know, the various uh, stories that we encounter today, whether they be good or bad, you know, ultimately they're trying to connect with something deep inside of us. That's why we read books. That's why we watch movies mm-hmm. because, um, you know, the good ones, at least, they stir up something within us, which means that there is some correlation between what's happening inside of us in our daily experience and what we're experiencing in this dramatized form. And so I think that everyone naturally recognizes that, at least in good stories, there is something real there. Mm -hmm. And so I think over the last year or so, especially since really studying Tolkien, I've come to a, a, um, I've come to approach the reality of myth more intentionally. Mm. Right. I, I think it's something, again, that we all recognize, but typically um, without recognizing that we recognize it. Sure. Yeah. Kind of a it's a it's a meta recognition. Um, right. Yeah. What. You and I are more alike, I think, than we appreciate, because I'm just as you were taking a moment to figure out which direction you wanted to go. And mm-hmm. I'm kind of doing the same now. What. um what myths do you like what what myths do you see us drawn to today or where do you see myth making myth telling um where do you see it alive or active or or thriving even because obviously obviously in a very general basic sense myth is storytelling and we're always going to have stories but like you said it's not just storytelling it's it, it goes much much deeper than that um you know i have i have here on my desk god in the dock by c.s lewis a collection of his essays one of those essays is uh myth became fact which you know i i i'd like to talk a bit about and the whole idea in there there's really two parts um two ideas in that essay the first 
and they kind of go together. The first is that is that we, as as modern cultures, as modern society, tries to move further away from from this you know superstitious idea of religious faith. They they don't re- we don't realize that in order to move away from something, we kind of have to acknowledge that there's something there to move away from. Because you no, know, otherwise it's kind of like what you were saying earlier, uh, where we're I forget how you said it, but we're we're in this we're in this void, you know, we're we're just kind of rudderless uh, unless we have somewhere that we're leaving a port that we're leaving from and a port that we're going to, and um, and so that's you know that's one idea in the in the essay. The other is this idea that that. A person, and this is almost a direct quote, a person can uh, draw upon the true myth of Christianity, and that right there is a loaded term that needs to be unpacked, but one can draw upon the true myth of Christianity purely as a myth and receive more nourishment from it than someone who, uh, what does he say, than someone who assents to it I can't remember what he says, but you know what I'm saying. And so mm-hmm. what, um, yeah. So like what, what myths do you see us uh, pursuing or living or telling these days? And um, yeah, let's go from there. What are your thoughts? I mean, I think ultimately the most popular myth that we tell ourselves, which we find, you know, throughout pop media today mm-hmm. is of course the, the myth of self-creation, which I've already it kind mm-hmm. of touched on a bit, um, you know, the the myth that, you know, ultimately there is no reality, but that which we make for ourselves. Yeah. Um, I think that's I mean, obviously the postmodern myth. Sure. Right. And this is why um, even in, in, you know, postmodern critiques of, of power and whatnot, you know, ultimately, I mean, it is might, might, might that makes right. 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 Because, um, if there are no transcendence, well, okay, there is no transcending good to aspire to, right? There is um, nothing that is truly good, nothing that is truly beautiful, nothing that is truly true. And so ultimately, all we have is each little, you know, individual island vying for significance. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, regardless of the the mantras that are put out there, um, you know, ultimately the only one that can rise to the top is the one who has, you know, the, the strongest guns at his back, which of course explains much of the last century. Right. Right. And, and so, yeah. and that seems to explain a lot of, um, a lot of what's replaced, uh, what's replaced, you know, the old, the old ways of oral, the oral tradition, you know, movies were the most popular movies of the last decade, Marvel. And, and, you know, it, what's interesting about Marvel is that, is is that and, and i can't remember where i heard this or how exactly it was put i think it was also uh bishop baron who said this no it was um it was an interview between jonathan pajo who i recently mm-hmm. turned you on to and mm-hmm. he was interviewing it was his first interview with uh a guy named paul kingsnorth Have, are you familiar with him i'm not no okay so paul kingsnorth is another guy that I would highly recommend you uh, get familiar with. He's an, he's mm-hmm. 
he's an incredible, interesting guy. But they were talking about um, they were talking about basically the idea that you can't get away from religion. You just kind of change what you hold as religious. And um, and, you know, they were talking about how how you can't have you can't have an interesting story. You can't have an action movie without the Jesus story of of some, you know, which is another kind of another way of saying like the hero's journey. Um, You know, you have, you know, look at, look at Iron Man, for example, you know, rich guy, which obviously that doesn't apply to Jesus, but like rich spoiled narcissist who gets taken captive. He's thought he's left for dead, uh, but he discovers meaning and he uses that meaning to, to do good and to save people. And, you know, you, you can't tell a story without these very basic religious aspects. It was, it would just be like Tony Stark woke up, had coffee and went to work. Like that's not, (laughs) that's not really something that's going to inspire. Um, And so, yeah, so this, this whole idea that might makes right self-invention. I'm the, I'm the author of my own destiny. Um, Yeah. There's a lot which, of that going uh, around these days. Which, of course, by the way, when you know Nietzsche declared the the death of God, that's not something that he did in a celebratory right. <laughs> mentality. Right. Um, I mean, he he recognized that this can have some terrifying consequences. Yeah, um, yeah. It was it was a lament <laughs> that we had killed God. Uh, right. Yeah. And so, well, I mean, obviously, I'm no Nietzschean. I mean, he at least recognized that this is not some freedom to celebrate in, in the sense that uh, is so often portrayed today by the postmodern. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mentioned uh, I mentioned C.S. Lewis. I mentioned myth became mm-hmm. fact. And so, I want to. And I saw you. Um, I saw you tweet. Uh, a little bit from the passage I'm about to read. So mm-hmm. I decided I'm going to read this passage in full. Um, now, as myth transcends thought, incarnation transcends myth. The heart of Christianity is a myth, which is also a fact. The old myth of the dying God, without ceasing to be myth, comes down from the heaven of legend and imagination to the earth of history. It happens at a particular date in a particular place, followed by definable historic consequences. We pass from bald, from a balder or an Osiris, dying nobody knows when or where, to a historical person crucified under Pontius Pilate. By becoming fact, it does not cease to be a myth. This is the miracle. And this is the part that I was I was trying to quote horribly earlier. I suspect that men have sometimes derived more spiritual sustenance from myths they did not believe than from the religion they professed. To be be truly Christian, we must both assent to the historical fact and also receive the myth, fact though it has become, with the same imaginative embrace which we accord to all myths. The one is hardly more necessary than the other. A man who disbelieved the Christian story as fact, but continually fed on it as a myth, would, perhaps, be more spiritually alive than one who assented and did not think much about it. So again, there's a lot to unpack there. Mm-hmm. But I know that you've read that. What are your thoughts on 
on Christianity being a true myth. What are your thoughts on on a man being able to derive more sustenance from from the mythic than from the religious if 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 they think more about the one than the other? Just what are your thoughts? Yeah, first of all, I I love his reference to, you know, some of these pagan myths, um, you know, the Osiris and whatnot, the, the idea of the dying and the rising God, because uh, a lot of times people will, you know, point to the these old myths and then say that, okay, you know, the Christian story is essentially some recapitulation of, you know, these old pagan myths uh, thrown into the person of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, but Lewis makes the point, and I think this is exactly right, and of course he's not alone in this, that, okay, if ultimately the gospel of Jesus Christ is the story of the cosmos, which of course is the Christian position. Well, you can expect that shadows of the story are, go- are going to come up throughout human history, throughout the human imagination. And so it's not so much that, you know, the Christ story as held you know, by Orthodox Christians um, is a you know reflection of these pagan myths. It's, no, the pagan myths are actually a reflection of Christ. <laughs> right. Right. What, um, what, it's somewhere in the book of Acts and I can never remember where, but somewhere in the book of Acts where it's either, it's either Paul or Peter. Again, I can never remember, but one of the other, they are, they're talking to the Hellenists and they are, they're saying basically like, you've got some of the details, right? You're just using the wrong names. And right. like that always, that always jumped out at me because like on the surface, it's just, it's a very clever way of evangelism but more more fundamentally i think that there's something right there i think that i I think that it was either lewis or tolkien or maybe not either of them but someone in their orbit said that that myth is myth is the the story god is telling using the images he finds you know and, and so like the the idea of of stories of dying and rising gods that just seem to be found in all these different cultures. You know, you could say like, Oh, so Christianity is just another one of those. It's like, well, possibly, but what if Christianity is that myth and all these others are retellings of this, this fundamental truth, this fundamental myth. Um, You know, I, I think Jonathan Pajot calls it the universal myth. Um, you know, again, these, these similarities that we see popping up all throughout, uh, mythic history all over the world, it just seems a little too coincidental to mm-hmm. just be like, you know, South America, the, the Mayans and the Greeks and the Mongolians, they all had stories of, of dying and rising gods. Well, isn't that something? Mm-hmm. Um, it really is something. Maybe it's more mm-hmm. of something than we give it credit for. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, of course, you can find traces of this idea, you know, as far back as you know, the you know church fathers or, um, uh, you know, Justin Martyr, the idea that the seeds of the Logos are, you know, spread throughout, mm. um, throughout the reality, yeah. right? And so, you know, even the pagan has access to what we would call Christian truth. I mean, really just truth itself, yeah. right? Even the pagan has access to truth, you know, as God's image bearer living in God's reality. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. That ultimately you can find traces of truth in even these pagan myths, because ultimately, end of the day, 
you know, these are God's image bearers living in God's creation. And so you can only expect that truth is going to emerge in, in various forms, even if it's clouded, right? Even if it's, you know, perverted in some cases, and in, in many yeah. cases, perhaps, um, nonetheless, truth is there because, you know, we are storytellers, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and as Tolkien says, we are sub-creators dealing with the materials that are already provided for us by the ultimate storyteller, who, of course, is God. Yeah. And so, yeah, all these myths are um, are kind of working with the story elements already provided to us. And so we can expect that there are going to be these similarities, you know, mm-hmm. across the globe and, and across time, which, of course, ultimately find their ideal fulfillment in the story which became fact mm-hmm. in Christ. So along with along with Tolkien, I'm a huge C.S. Lewis fan. In fact, I I I came to Tolkien in large part because of Lewis. I I I just I, I went through a phase where I was just enamored with with Lewis's story, with his you know, his trajectory, uh his spiritual intellectual trajectory. And there so there's um there's a an online there was an online lecture course through Hillsdale a few years ago. I don't know if this is still offered. I think it's been rolled into a different course, but it was a it was the uh the imagination of C.S. Lewis. And it was an, an eight or ten part course that um that looked at different aspects of you know the imagination, the philosophy, the worldview of C.S. Lewis. And the the first two are taught by uh this brilliant guy maybe you're familiar with him uh father michael ward um he's a he's a lewis scholar mm-hmm. and he's uh i believe he's a professor at oxford or cambridge one of the two um and so he's teaching this, this course on lewis and he's telling he's telling the story about how when lewis was still a, a schoolboy he you know, over in England, uh, you studied in England, yeah? Actually, no, I haven't. I thought you did. Okay, maybe I'm thinking of someone else. No. Um, maybe, okay. I, I think of people all the time. <laughs> but uh, so over in England, they have, you know, like religious education in their schools, and it's it's mandatory. And so here's C.S. Lewis. He's sitting in school, and this is back when England was still a much more Christian, Christian nation. Mm-hmm. And... Right. um. And his his instructor is is talking about uh, Christianity being the only true religion. And already at this point in his life, C.S. Lewis was very well read, um, particularly in in myth. And he didn't take kindly to that because he didn't he didn't like the idea that all the other stories that he had read were deemed completely false or or untruthful because Christianity was just absorbing all the all the truth real estate. And so he that was what began his trip or his his trajectory away from the Christian faith as childhood was this idea that that only Christianity was true. And he said he said something to the effect of if if truth can be found in the pagan religions, that's not worse for Christianity. It's actually better for it. Um, 
which again, like that's the kind of thing you're th- you, you hear that. And on the surface, it sounds like, wait, so are you saying that pagan religions are good? Well, no, but also not. No, like there's, there, there might be some things that we can take away from them. The, the value of, of bravery of, mm-hmm. you know, laying down your life for the, for the tribe or for the family, um, you know, defeating the dragon, going after, mm-hmm. um, you know, going after the monster because it's the right thing to do. And uh, those were all, those were all pagan, pagan values that C.S. Lewis held on to. And he didn't like the idea that only Christians could express them. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, years later, of course, he and, he and Tolkien have their fateful walk and, and Tolkien expresses that, well, you know, Christianity is just like those stories that you like, only it's true, which is, you know, I think where he gets this from. Um, so, yeah, like just of all the, the word vomit that I just spewed out, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that's exactly right that, uh, all, you know, they're obviously Christians take different approaches to this. Um, right. And in fact, um, really, when it comes down to the study of, you know, <laughs> philosophy in general, let alone uh, pagan myths, right, there is obviously a, a certain, um, I don't want to say is that sounding too condescending, but it is what it is, a certain anti-intellectualism. Sure. Right. I mean, there were um, a, a number of times when I started studying, you know, philosophy mm-hmm. that, you know, a lot of Christians in my life thought that maybe I was dabbling in something <laughs> dangerous, <laughs> yeah. which is just silly um, because ultimately, you know, all truth is God's truth, wherever it can be found, mm-hmm. uh, whether we're talking about the pagan philosopher or the pagan myth maker. Um, and so, and, um, mm-hmm. you know, Augustine makes this point that, you know, just as, when you know the Israelites, you know, left Egypt, they reclaimed the treasures that justly belonged to them. Yeah, you know, so too, ultimately, uh, you know, all truth, whether it's you know found in a myth or, or wherever, it, it belongs to God. And so, why would you turn that away? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's like like you said earlier, there's there's so many different directions that we can that we can go in with this. Um, you have been reading. For your podcast, um, you've been reading, or maybe it's for your Patreon, but you've been reading mm-hmm. Grimm's Fairy Tales. I have not, uh, obviously I'm familiar with some of them because, you know, certain of those tales have have uh, worked their way into the the collective conscious of, of the Western world, at least. Um, but I'm not intimately familiar with them what what are Grimm's fairy tales what attracts you to them why are you reading about them for the purpose of the mm-hmm. mythic mind yeah and so this is something that I've been um, doing for my my patreon it's something I'm kind of wrapping up now mm-hmm. um, but you know after laying out some of the you know foundational ideas regarding this uh, appreciation for myth and, and the reality found within myth you know, I decided I wanted to really take that into application um, as far as understanding some of the major myths that have shaped at least the Western world. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, the, the Grimm collection is is rife with those. Sure. You know, all, all these different stories have been adapted, you know, especially by Disney and obviously mm-hmm. um, other sources of the collective consciousness. And so um, I figured, you know, 
why not start with this foundational collection of fairy tales? And so, um, you know, I'm no expert on fairy tales or folklore or anything like this. Sure. And so very much approaching them, you know, as a, you know, aspiring philosopher theologian mm-hmm. rather than a, you know, historian of stories or a, sure. um, a, a term that, um, you know, Lewis coined the methonymer. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, I just really been enjoying reading these stories, which, you know, obviously were taught to children to teach moral tales of, of some sort or another. You know, that's yeah. why fairy tales were originally told. Right. Um, but as I read them, you know, with my newfound appreciation for myth, you know, I've really been able to find, you know, a great deal of wisdom embedded in these short, simple stories, you know, mm-hmm. wisdom of, about the importance of, um, you know, taking responsibility for, you know, your decisions and your responses to the world, um, your responsibility to, um, you know, not navigate blindly with naivete, which, you know, leads these, you know, fairy tale um, characters into all kinds of trouble. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think that it's kind of helpful to get to um, the the depths of these stories that people are already familiar with and helping them realize what they've been receiving all along without necessarily realizing it. Hmm. Hmm. And that ultimately no story, no fairy tale is just that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that is why, I mean, that's, and I know for a fact that that's why, why Lewis, um, why Lewis chose to write, you know, children's stories more or less was because he understood that when you communicate with stories, when you communicate ideas with images, you know, everyone can, at least at that time, everyone could picture what, uh, what a, a runaway carriage on the streets of London would look like. And so he used that in, um, in the magician's nephew, right? Like everyone knows what a lion looks like. And so hmm. aside from just using the, the Christian imagery of, of Christ as a lion, he decided to use a lion because everyone knows what hmm. a lion looks like. It's, it's powerful. It's, it's majestic. That's a good, a good stand in for a Christ figure. And, um, and so, so what, what of Grimm's fairy tales now, have you read like, did you read all of them? Did you read, did you cherry pick them? Like, what was your methodology there? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it has been cherry picked. Um, you know, as I'm going in a million different directions at once, sure. I only have but so much time. Sure. Um, and so, yeah, I, mean, I started with some of the more familiar ones. Um, and so, you know, Little Red Riding Hood, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, Briar Rose or, you know, Sleeping Beauty as we know it. Yeah. Which, by the way, I, I contend that Sleeping Beauty is perhaps the best movie Disney has ever made. Okay, I I need to go back and revisit it. But now that you say that, I remember you you tweeting that some time ago. Why is it the best movie that Disney's ever made? Well, for one thing, it's something that they would never make today, because you know, the main plot of the story is that um, you know, true love, the the Prince Philip, right? True mm. love literally equips the sword of truth and shield of virtue to vanquish the chaos monster, uh, awaken beauty and thereby awaken the kingdom. 
<laughs> it doesn't get much better than that. Yeah, yeah, and it doesn't get much further away from from uh, what we've been talking about this whole time, the modern myth, than that. That, uh, yeah, that would have a hard time being met. Plus, it would it would have to be the opposite. So it would be something like Sleeping Beauty is actually about about uh, about beauty. I can't remember her name. What is her name? Yeah, Aurora. Aurora, that's it. So yeah, Sleeping Beauty would be about Aurora um basically turning away, you know, Prince Charming, Prince <laughs> Philip and saying like I can do this on my own. Um and then, you know, Prince Philip, Prince Charles, whatever his name is, uh he would, you know, stumble his way out of the castle and and <laughs> cause all these calamities cuz he's just a a screw up. <laughs> um I just I just wrote Disney's next next million dollar movie. But um, what uh, what grim, what what grim, which of Grimm's fairy tales? You know, aside from the fact that Sleeping Beauty is the the best movie that Disney ever made, which of Grimm's fairy tales have you been most affected by, most impacted by, or or that you think has the most to offer to to our times? I mean, honestly, I, I think I've got to give it to uh, Briar Rose okay. <laughs> for much of the same reasons. Yeah. Um. That. Um. Man, it's it's ultimately uh, about the interplay of beauty and, and love and the effect that that has on society. Mm-hmm. Um, something that I I often um, mention on my podcast and elsewhere is the. Um, the very real quality of beauty, you know, today we're, we're, it's a cliche to say that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. That is okay. not a classic understanding of beauty. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, you know, go back to the, the Greek, the ancient Greeks and you've got the muses and the sirens, mm-hmm. right? You've got the, the muses, which inspire truth, goodness, and beauty. And then you've got the sirens, which, you know, like the muses, you know, they do draw the affections. They, they speak to desires, mm-hmm. but to a very different end. And so you've got beauty and seduction as these very real forces in the world, one yeah. of which will guide the, the soul toward truth and goodness, one which will have the appearance of beauty, but ultimately lead to destruction. And I think that when we refer, when we today talk about beauty, so often we're talking about what the ancient world would um, perhaps call seduction, mm-hmm. right? Not all that draws us in is actually good, um, mm. but true beauty when it's upheld and when it's embraced appropriately right it it pulls the soul toward what is true and good and ultimately reality affirming um it's what pulls us it's what to you know do some tie-ins from earlier conversation ultimately it's beauty which you know enchants our souls um pulling us into the the true myth and it's as we move into the, the true story that we find that all of the different subplots of our lives and ultimately of our societies, uh, you know, find their place. It, it's when the, mm. um, for another tie in, it's when all the, the various musical tones break, you know, come into harmony. Yeah. And so I, I think that that basic story about the relationship between true love, true beauty and the awakening of the kingdom. I, I think that is something that our modern age very much needs. I think that that is a a good note to end this particular conversation on. As I expected, we didn't get to half the things that I wanted to. Um, 
but maybe that's by design. Maybe that's just a, a, a way for me to to bring you back on for another episode. Um, if so, here's my feeble attempt at a lightning round. Uh, first of all, Tolkien or Lewis? Tolkien. Okay. Uh, Rohan or Gondor? Gondor. Gondor. Okay. We are not as alike as I thought we were. <laughs> um, what happened to the Entwives? Well, rumor has it they might be wandering around the Shire somewhere. Rumor has it. Um, more, more likely they died. <laughs> Yeah, that does seem the more the evidence does seem to point more in that direction. Uh Mary or Pippin? Mm. Mary. Mary. So you chose Gondor over Rohan, but you choose Mary over Pippin. That's Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm a politician. Yeah, you're you're a complicated fellow. Um 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 that's all I can think of today. So uh where can people find you? You know, you've got a lot of stuff going on. You're a very entrepreneurial minded individual. Where can people find you? What are you working on? Okay, yeah, so I'm kind of all over the place, but to really hone in, um primary social media is Twitter at Andrew in Snyder. Um also I've really been working a lot on my Patreon, patreon.com slash Andrew in Snyder. Um, also just recently started doing a, a sub stack on Tolkien's letters. And so every week I'm doing a summary and reflection on Tolkien's letters, nice. uh, sub stack, Andrew and Snyder, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, really the best way, probably just go to my Twitter. I have a link tree there. You can see yeah. what I'm working on. Awesome. Yeah. And I'll make sure that, that all those links to all of those will definitely be available. Um, this has been fun. This we've been we've been joking about doing this for at least a year, and uh, and we finally <laughs> we made the joke. Uh, joke became reality, I, I suppose. <laughs> um, but no, this is fun. Thanks for coming on my show. I hope you'll come back. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I felt like I was trying to cram a lot in simply because we've been tossing this around so long. I, I know, <laughs> I know. That was my fear was that we would do precisely that. And so <laughs> next time we'll have a we'll have a more uh leisurely uh, a more leisurely conversation about existential dread and and all the various ways that society is falling apart, but also <laughs> how we can hold it together. Um but you know speaking of of holding it together, we're going to we're gonna close this book for now. Um you're welcome on anytime. But uh, thanks for coming on. And oh, and um, how did I almost not mention this? This is being recorded on uh, January 3rd, which Tolkien fans will know is uh, Tolkien's 131st birthday. So, um, you know, we've already kind of talked about about what Tolkien means to you. But uh, yeah, happy birthday to the professor. eh? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Happy birthday, professor. Uh, We appreciate everything you've done. So that's it for this episode, and uh, we'll be talking again soon, Andrew. All right, look forward to it. All righty. Thank you for listening to this episode of Through the Keyhole. Just a reminder, you can follow me on Twitter at Jeremy A. Key. God help me, you can like or subscribe to the show to, uh, to keep in touch with everything that's going on, new episodes and all that fun stuff. You can also find me on YouTube at Through the Keyhole on the YouTubes. Uh, That's it. That's it. Baba Booey!